logo in bright, beautiful colors on, I'm not kidding, the softest v-neck. <laughs> I watched Rowan walk in to our video call wearing a Willing and Fable logo v-neck t-shirt and then put a Willing and Fable logo sweatshirt over it and sit down to record an episode of Willing and Fable. And if that's not dedication, I don't know what is. Well, Tracy, my mommy says that if you can <laughs> support yourself, why should anyone else support you? No. Well, okay, here's here's how it actually went down. My Willing and Fable hoodie lives on my chair in my office because I am always cold. Mm -hmm. But then today, the male person, thank goodness, delivered to me the very first beautiful shiny samples of our new merch. And I kid you not, out of the bag box pack foam package, they are soft and beautiful and they don't smell weird like printed shirts sometimes do. Oh, I know when you have to wash them immediately after getting them because they smell like vinegar. No, that's my pet peeve. If something is coming from a place where it's made new not a thrift store but a new shiny place i do not want it to smell like it's gonna maybe kill me mm -hmm. i agree it, honestly it smells hold on let me sniff my own yeah, yeah. self let's get a, a sniff test mm, it smells like nothing and my deodorant <laughs> awesome. so if you want a shirt that smells like nothing unfortunately rowan deodorant scent is not included <laughs> you can now get it. <laughs> yeah, this is our official announcement. Tracy and I have been working on this merch for so long. Our illustrator, Tracy's exceptionally skilled twin who designed our logo, was just above and beyond oh, working on these designs with we us. Would, we would, like, just in passing, be like, oh, we wish we had a design that said artists fueled by caffeine and compliments. And then two days later, she's like, oh, I just kind of drew this. And it's this beautiful design we immediately put up for sale in our shop. We're so excited. I got the print of that. And by I got the test sample of that, I mean, I sent it to my mom. And because she's so picky about hoodies, you know, in the best way, you know, she's mm -hmm. it has to be soft. It has to fit well. So I knew that she would be discerning. And, you know, I need people who are of various all different human sizes and shapes. And I'm like five full inches taller than my mom. And I want to know that she's going to like the hoodie just as much as I do. Mm -hmm. So we sent all these different samples to each other and our friends and oh yeah everyone gave it the thumbs up i was the last person to get the design and we're guys we have merch and i'm gonna hype my favorite one okay we call it the pulp fiction design tracy came up with this idea because she's a freaking genius uh <laughs> It's all my hopes and dreams ever manifest as a Pulp Fiction comic book cover of us. Mm -hmm. Are we witches or demons? Are we in hell? What's it's going like on? It's like this occult comic cover. So we're in robes. I've got a Necronomicon looking book in my hands. It is so cool. Jamie took my 
rough sketch idea and made a beautiful design that actually looks like a comic book. Yeah, we are so excited. There are a lot of little Easter eggs tucked in some of these designs. I I don't want to give them away all of them, but one of my favorite Easter eggs is Lola hidden in our Tell Me Something Good design with three eyes because mm-hmm. that's how we roll. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Rowan, if you wanted to get some of this merch, maybe for yourself or a friend or family, especially <laughs> with the holidays coming up, where would you go to do it? Well, you can go right to our website. We have a tab for it. It's the merch tab. It'll take you over to Threadless, where our custom Only Us shop exists. We have shirts. We have, oh, we have travel mugs. We have traditional mugs. We have a couple masks. Those are fun. Mm -hmm. We got hoodies. There's so many exciting things. We are so happy to be working with Threadless They've really, really been amazing. Yeah, I've had a lot of contact with that company, and they've been really doing right by us. And just know, if you get any Willing and Fable merch, all the money that we raise from that is going immediately to season two because we have a lot of exciting plans that we're working on. And remember, we're not a cult for tax purposes, but if you want your official cult wardrobe, we have it for you now. (laughs) For legal reasons and tax purposes, we are not a cult, but we can all wear matching outfits together and talk about uh, co-op farming if you want. No, no. <laughs> I, I I think you should look into it. I think you, if you have some free time, you should look into it. Couldn't we work on like lesser demon summoning? Equally as productive, probably just as good for the environment. <laughs> 24 hours in a day, babe. We can do it all. <laughs> Okay, so we also have a Patreon announcement. So the other cool announcement is that we have one added limited time, limited slot tier just until January for the holidays that has nothing, things that aren't on any of the other tiers. Yeah, completely unique rewards for this level of tier. Only going to be here through the end of the year, but there's some Dungeons and Dragons rewards. Yeah, by some Dungeons and Dragons, let's just say it's a Dungeons and Dragons themed time. And, uh... <laughs> it might be Dungeons and Dragons themed. Who knows? We do. Go check it out. We're assembling a party is basically what's going down. <laughs> so check it out. Happy holidays, cults. Happy holidays, soon-to-be cults. We're happy to have you because we are the Willing and Fable podcast. We talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. That is your lovely host, Tracy Harrison. Oh, you guys, she called me lovely. That is your wonderful, amazing, talented, and beautiful host, Rowan Hall. Why are you going to be like that? I got to one-up you. Why are you going to one-up me on the nice compliments that actually make me feel good? Why? <laughs> Because I love you so much that I want you to suffer in my love. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Today, I texted Tracy in all capital letters, tell me I'm pretty. And guys, get you a best friend who (laughs) knows that when you say tell me I'm pretty, it has almost nothing to do with your 
appearance and everything to do with your entire self-worth being on the basement floor. (laughs) Also, I should add, your hair looks very moisturized and your curls look very happy. My favorite part of 2020 is that looking moisturized is peak compliment. Right? Peak compliment content, baby. Tracy, you're... You're just the best. I don't deserve you. Thank you for podcasting with me. (laughs) Everyone, tell someone in your life how moisturized and lovely they look today. (laughs) So now that we've talked about moisture, Rowan, what are we talking about in our episode? Oh my gosh, I hate you for that transition. I don't see a problem with it. Everyone just wait. I think it was executed beautifully and truly I wouldn't change it. Yeah, well, when we get to your story, here's the deal, everyone. (laughs) Now that we've made announcements, our regularly scheduled episode is about to start. You all thought spooky season was over. We at the Willing and Fable podcast say heck no, because this week we are bringing you two monster tales to remind you that we are so committed to that Nightmare Before Christmas theme for the rest of winter. Whatever holiday you're celebrating, whatever jolly activity you're doing, please join us in imagining a spooky skeleton who knows nothing about holiday cheer trying to make it work. Besides, who doesn't love a spooky cryptid sneaking around in the wintry mists as a gentle snow falls silently to the ground? Just us? Okay. Moving on. The monster I chose to do this week is none other than Pennsylvania's own state cryptid, Squonk. (laughs) A special thank you to our patron, Jer Bear Scare. Uh, A while ago, he sent us a list of mythical encrypted creatures for each state. Uh, And it was that list that led me to the Squonk, which everyone who is on our Discord knows I am deeply obsessed with. That was the coolest resource we both independently saved it Mm -hmm. onto our our resources list so we had accidentally doubled it up and have both been so excited about it that we've gone oh my god look at that thing yeah yeah we know we were both there on the (laughs) discord (laughs) so thank you so much dear bear scare thank you today i will be covering this moist miserable little creature to whom I so desperately want to give a cup of soup. I'm embarrassed. I am from Pennsylvania and did not know about this little beastie until we got that list. I don't think a lot of people know about this creature. I think it's also because it's famous. It's famously from northeast Pennsylvania, and that's not where we oh. grew up. So it's exclusively a what we call Nipa creature, northeast PA. I hate that. Don't tell anyone from Nipah that. I think I don't like it just because now everything sounds wet and swampy. Oh, like, get I'm ready. Just... It's going to get wetter. So before I jump <sighs> in, I have to say that there is a song by Genesis called Squonk, which is frankly a bop, and I had no idea it existed. <laughs> get ready. It's going to get pitiful. So our morose, slimy little friend is a cryptid found in northeast Pennsylvania. Uh, this cryptid is most famous for two things, being incredibly ugly and incredibly sad. And frankly, that's just a 2020 mood. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I thought I was doing a real fun goof this week. I thought I was giving myself a little silly cryptid to research. Um, 
it is so pitiful, it gets genuinely uncomfortable. So get ready. Can confirm, Tracy texted me very late at night, my time, which means it was quite late at night, her time. Just sad information about this little critter. I was, I, I needed someone to suffer with me. I was so upset. <laughs> Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwood is a book that was written in 1910 by William T. Cox. And this book contains the first written account of the squonk. In his description, Cox says, The range of the squonk is very limited. Few people outside of Pennsylvania have ever heard of the quaint beast, which is said to be fairly common in the hemlock forests of that state. The squonk is of a very retiring disposition, generally traveling about at twilight and dusk. Because of its misfitting skin, which is covered with warts and moles, it is always unhappy. In fact, it is said, by people who are best able to judge, to be the most morbid of beasts. Hunters who are good at tracking are able to follow a squonk by its tear-stained trail, for the animal weeps constantly. When cornered, an escape seems impossible, or when surprised and frightened, it may even dissolve itself into tears. Squonk hunters are most successful on frosty, moonlit nights, when tears are shed slowly and the animal dislikes moving about. So that's what I'm working with this week. When it dissolves into tears, is it just gone, or can it reconstitute itself? It can reconstitute. So it's basically sad jello. Yeah, with warts. Oh, honey. I know. So Cox also writes that a certain J.P. Wentling once successfully caught a, or perhaps the, squonk. It's unknown if there's many or one. Anyway, J.P. Wentling caught the squonk in a sack. However, once he got home, he discovered that the sack was considerably lighter and only a small pool of liquid remained at the bottom. Cox gave the creature the Latin name Lacrima Corpus Dissolvens, which roughly translates to teary body dissolves. Okay, I have an anecdote about uh, hunting for mythological creatures in Pennsylvania. Go for it. I'm excited. If you have a young person in your life that you're ever going to want to play a wholesome prank on, just skip ahead about two minutes. Okay. So, um, a family friend of ours had a son. She might as well have been my aunt. She was so close. Mm -hmm. And her son might as well have been my cousin. And I'm five years older than he is. And he is a delightful human being. He always has been. He's quite a great grown-up. But on this particular day, on this particular time they were visiting us, he was in a bit of a mood. Mm -hmm. And he would not stop pestering his parents about how he wanted to get a cat. And I said, well, you know, you probably can't get a cat, but I could take you on a snipe hunt and they make really good pets. And you all know that I live in the woods. So I told my parents and his parents, all right, guys, we're going on a snipe hunt. We'll see you in a bit. And they all just smiled and nodded and said, have fun. <laughs> and we went out into the woods and we're walking around. And I tell him he has to hold the paper bag with his eyes closed in the middle of this sort of clearing 
and wait for the snipe to come. And I kid you not, I grabbed a rock off the ground and put it in the bag and then grabbed it and started shaking it around like the snipe was trying to get out. And I was like, I'll carry it for you all the way back. Don't worry about it. And I carried it and just rattled it around the whole way like it was trying to get out. And I talked about what a great pet it was going to be and how it kind of looked a little bit like a cat. And it was really cute. He was oh so God. excited. We got back. He was going to show his parents the snipe. And then he found the rock. What did he do? <laughs> he was really grumpy. And yeah. I think I think <laughs> that he thought he was going to get some sympathy from his parents or my parents. And my dad was like, high five. Good job, kid. And <laughs> his parents were like, wow, you got played like that? Oof. Sorry, buddy. And uh, I have never been more proud at that age. That was like pinnacle. Oh, well, at that age, that's like the greatest thing you could ever do. Was he slightly older than you too? Because that's just the chef's kiss to no, it. No, I was older than him. Mm. So but it we sounds like both... you were a child abusing another child by <laughs> tricking it out. <laughs> Let me just turn the tables on you. I didn't like send him out on his own and leave him. I stayed with him the whole time. It sounds like you were you were committing really cruel, cruel torture. It sounds like... Listen, I made that kid what he is today <laughs> toughen up <laughs> i will say to his credit he was grumpy for a second and then he really he got he got on board he was like yeah that was a good prank i think he tried to play it on someone later oh that's funny so i taught him the way of the snipe hunt you can also go on a pastrami hunt if someone is uh more inclined to to want to hunt for that it's a good time y'all don't leave people alone in the woods in the dark but no i didn't no. just to be clear so <laughs> i'm sorry to completely digress it's just the sack with it dissolving into water yeah that's the next time you do it you can just pour water in and be like oh we tried to ca catch the squonk and it got oh my away god i totally forgot for a little bit he believed that I had thrown the rock in there, but Snipe still existed. <laughs> oh, wow. This story. Ugh. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It really is. History <laughs> always provides personal history. Personal, global history provides, y'all. So back to our sweet baby squonky. Okay. So Fearsome Critters is a book that was written in 1939 by Henry Tryon. And it describes the squonk thusly. Today, the squonk is met with solely in the hemlock forests of Pennsylvania. It is a most retiring, bashful, crepuscular animal, garbed in a loose, warty, singularly ill-fitting skin. The squonk is always unhappy, even morbid. He is given to constant weeping over his really upsetting appearance and can sometimes be tracked by his tear-stained trail. Moonlit nights are best for squawk hunts, for then the animal prefers to lie quietly in its hemlock home, fearing, should it venture forth, that it may catch a glimpse of itself in some moonlit pool. Sometimes you can hear one weeping softly to himself. It's interesting to me that this horribly depressed being is associated with hemlock as well. Yeah, it's in the hemlock forest. That's where it's found. Oh. Hemlock's a poison, right? 
Yes, it is. And it's 1939. And I hope he's sticking around for 2020 because self-love and body positivity or at least body neutrality are the thing now. It's happening. I know. You'll you'll notice in my story I could not. Y'all, after reading so many articles about this creature where it's described as pitiful, it, it like, ugh, it like apologizes for being itself. Like, it is just the most pitiful, morose little creature. All I want to do is give it a hug and some soup. Is it inherently a prepubescent, like, young thing? Like, going through that age of just struggle? I think it's just a permanent struggle. I think it just lives in that. So, for anyone who hasn't seen any illustrations, what what are we talking about? Size? What are we talking with face, body? What's what's the deal? Mm-hmm. I try to describe it a bit in my story, but I'll, I'll give you a little picture now. There's a few different ways it's described. Some of it, some drawings make it look pretty small, almost like a, you know, like a baby teacup pig when they're like still cute and little. Others, it seems a lot bigger and it sits more upright, like it's an enlarged frog kind of shape. Like it's wildly different shapes. I like the drawings that make it look almost like, it's almost got a little bit of a snout. It's like a little bit, it's like a, um, Pig meets like a capybara meets a hairless cat with Mm. the skin being a little too loose, but like wrinkly too loose, you know? Yeah, that's the ones that I've seen. It's got a little snoot. It's got a little little snoot. It's very cute. It's got a little snoot, little tail. I will tell you my story of the squonk, and then we can get into a little bit more history. It's on nights like tonight. When the air is chilled by an incoming storm and Granny feels the ache of it in her bones that she always stands in front of the stove and makes soup. You evil bitch, you made a story with a grandma and a squonk. Listen, I needed to make myself feel better. This friendship is over. Why? (laughs) There's too many emotions. No, it's all good ones. I don't do sad things. All right. I grew up in the woods of northern Pennsylvania in a small but cozy cottage that my great-grandfather built in the woods. My family has lived in this house since my granny was a little girl, and for a long time, I never thought to wonder why she did the things she did. I never questioned it as a child. Parents and grandparents often do things children barely understand, let alone question. In fact, it wasn't even until I got older that I really started to notice the habit at all. That's when I noticed that she didn't just do this ritual on stormy, late summer nights, but any time the weather was unbearably cold or particularly harsh. Without fail, each time, my granny would pull herself up from her favorite chair, every bone in her small body seeming to crack, and walk her way over to the stove. Once the soup was steaming hot, she would place it into a large mug or bowl and walk straight out the front door with it and put it down on the porch. She always kept soup in the freezer or the fridge, and if we ran out, she would immediately make more. It never made sense to me, but I just assumed it was because of a hardship in her early life. Maybe she'd gone hungry as a child once and was always prepared just in case that happened again. 
Why she felt the need to take the soup for a walk outside in bad weather? That was beyond my comprehension. Though once I did notice the odd behavior, it began to irk me more and more. As Granny got older and her body grew more frail, my mother began picking up the habit per Granny's request. Pull the soup out of the fridge or the freezer, place it on the stove, and heat it until steaming. It was always the same soup, a vegetable minestrone of potatoes, onions, celery, carrots, and beans. Once hot, it went into a bowl and was walked straight out the front door and put on the porch. Finally... When I was 13, I demanded to know what was going on. I was basically an adult now, and I knew this was not normal. Why did we always put soup on the front porch when the weather was bad like some crazy people? What were they doing, hoping the weather gods would take the soup and make it suddenly stop raining? None of my friends' families did this, so why were we doing something so weird? My granny burst out laughing at my tantrum, and my mother just stared nonplussed. Granny told my mother that it was time I heard the story. But my mother replied that it was just a silly folktale and that all of this was ridiculous, but Granny insisted that I should know. I resisted the urge to ask no what. I was afraid that any more outbursts would get me sent to my room. So I sat on the love seat opposite my Granny and noticed that she looked so small in the light of the fireplace. The warm glow reflected off the seemingly translucent skin of her slender fingers wrapped in the knitted blanket on her lap. She began her story. When she was a very little girl, my great-grandfather built the house that my grandmother, mother, and I all grew up in. Things were different back then. If I thought we lived in the middle of nowhere now, this is practically the city compared to what it was. Granny used to run around these woods with her brother from sun up till sundown without a care in the world. Folks would try to warn them of monsters in the woods, but that only spurred them on to explore even more. So one day, my great-grandfather took Granny's brother into town, and my great-grandmother sent her outside to do some chore or another. She quickly found the task boring and went off to explore on her own for a bit. She went jumping and climbing and running all around the woods for a few hours before she eventually got herself into some trouble. She had just climbed up a very lovely-looking tree when the branch underneath her cracked and fell, with her right alongside it. Granny doesn't remember the fall, just the sudden pain in her leg when she hit the ground. It took all the courage she had to look down, and when she did, she knew immediately that her leg was broken. She tried to stand, but she couldn't even move, let alone get herself off the ground. She was stuck on the ground, in the mud, in the middle of the forest, miles away from home. She was scared, cold, and alone. And... Without knowing what else to do, she burst into tears. It was in the midst of her weeping that she heard a noise in the brush beside her. She whipped her head to face the sound and let out a squeal of surprise at what stood before her. A hideous, slimy creature with sagging skin and small warts on its body. The creature let out a little yell just as she did upon seeing it. It dashed back behind a bush, shaking in surprise as little droplets flung from its loose skin. 
It had a small snout like a pig and a rounded body that ended in a nubbish little tail. It was too wide to fit behind the bush, so its ears and sides poked out from the edges, clearly visible to Granny. It just stood there, shaking for a few moments before Granny realized that it, it wasn't trying to hurt her. She called out to it, this time in a gentle voice, asking it to come out of hiding. Slowly, the creature came out of its ineffective hiding spot and made its way towards my grandma. It had large, round eyes filled with wet-looking tears, and a trail of liquid followed as it walked. It approached my granny slowly and cautiously. All the while, she gently urged it forward. Hello there, little one. You're just as sad and scared as I am, aren't you? What are you doing out here? The creature didn't respond to Granny, but its sad, large eyes looked over her. It noticed her leg, the ankle now swollen to a large and angry-looking mass. I'm hurt, she said, as if confirming what the creature seemed to already know. Could you... could you help me? I can't make it back home by myself, and I'm afraid I'm rather stuck here otherwise. The creature was surprisingly quiet as it moved towards my granny. It hesitated before her as if it was afraid of what might happen should it come too close. She reached out her hand slowly so as to not scare it away, and when she touched its skin, she was surprised by the way it felt. It felt similar to when she and her brother would pick up toads in the woods, although it was slimier than a toad, but the feeling wasn't unlike the small creatures. She was surprised. She expected it to feel worse based on the trail of liquid that followed the creature, but it wasn't as bad as she expected. The creature leaned into her hand and then moved forward and shuffled its round little body under her arm and pushed up off the ground to help her stand. She wobbled for a frightful moment before finding her balance and resting much of her weight on the creature's back. You did it! I'm actually standing! Oh, you magnificent creature, you did it! She exclaimed this in pure joy, and the creature, clearly delighted by her response, let out a sort of honking sound. It was a mix of a squeak and a low honk that caused Granny to let out a laugh. What an adorable laugh you have, a squonking little sound. That's it! I'll call you squonk. How does that sound, friend? In response, the creature wiggled slightly and made more of the honking laugh, clearly pleased. Squonk it is. Granny declared. Now if you would please help me walk home, Squonk, I'd be ever so grateful. The pair hobbled their way back to the house in a slow but steady process of hops, limps, and jumps. When Granny arrived back to the cabin, her mother was at the front door, clearly worried about her missing daughter. She rushed forward, scooped Granny up in her arms, and held her close. It took her mother a long moment to notice the creature, but when she did... She looked at it with concern and appreciation rather than fear. Great-grandma came from a time when you respected and appreciated the creatures of the woods, and you did not accept their help without offering gratitude and something else in return. She did not question the creature's presence. Instead, she offered it a hearty thanks for helping her daughter. In fact, once she had Granny settled inside, she went over to the stove and poured some of the soup she'd been making into a large bowl and brought it outside. 
Squawk was hesitant at first, but eventually made its way over to the bowl of delicious food. As soon as it realized what was being offered, it scooped up the bowl and scurried happily back into the forest just as the sun fell below the horizon. The next morning, a perfectly clean bowl was left on the front porch. Over the years, Granny learned that on nice, warm days, Squonk preferred to spend its time alone in the forest. But when the weather got bad or turned cold, she always left out a bowl of warm soup to help the creature out, and it always left the bowl by the front door come morning. She rarely caught sight of it again, but she always knew it was there. Sometimes it would even leave little gifts along with the bowl, such as a shiny rock or a particularly pretty feather. As Granny finished telling me the story, my mother handed me a bowl of hot soup. She whispered for me not to take the story too seriously, as it was just a folk tale passed down through generations. Still, she suggested I put the bowl outside anyway. At least the raccoons might enjoy a nice meal, and it would make Granny happy to see me do it. So I got up and took the bowl outside and placed it on the edge of the front porch. It hadn't started raining yet, but the sky was growing darker by the minute. I sat on the wooden swing, staring at the bowl of soup for a few minutes while waiting for the sky to open up and start a downpour. When I first saw the pair of eyes glinting in the fading light, I assumed it was a wild animal who caught scent of the food. But I was wrong. Out of the tree line came a creature I couldn't have imagined if I tried. Loose skin hung around its body in wrinkles like an overweight, hairless cat. A small, upturned snout sat below large, wide-set eyes. It had small warts along its body, and every single inch of it was covered in a wet-looking slime. I hesitated when it saw me, just as it did when I laid eyes on it. We stared at each other for a long moment before I spoke. Squonk? Is that you? My granny told me about you and how you helped her. Thank you for what you did. My mother doesn't believe you exist, but I can see that granny told the truth. You don't have to be afraid here. We're your friends. I promise you will always have a friend here. With those words, Squonk came forward, took the bowl, and rushed back off to the woods. As it left, I noticed that a small geode sat where the bowl had been. I picked it up and walked back inside, and as soon as Granny saw what was in my hand, she smiled. <laughs> Squonk likes you, she said. I think we will see more of it from now on. I hope so, I replied, turning the geode over in my hands. It sparkled in the warm light of the house. I like to think I made a new friend. How dare you tell a story that wholesome? I needed a story that wholesome. I could not handle the thought of Squonk cold and sad and alone with no one to give it soup and tell it that, it, that they love it and that it can just have friends. Listen, I mean, I know that's the only option because we're not going to leave Squonk out alone in the woods on this podcast and you're a good person, but, oh, it hurts my heart so much. How funny is it that that hurts your heart so much and yet you can write, like, the world's saddest selkie story and you're like, it was just so cathartic and lovely to do. Well, it's just so melancholy. Just, 
it's just such a I know. sad situation. I don't know. Extreme levels of wholesome kindness make my heart hurt. Not in a like, <laughs> this is gross way, just in a like, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. A little, little squonky squonk. <laughs> little squonk. He just loves the soup, but he'll give you the bowl back. He's a nice boy. I need to know, did you come up with that naming system? Yeah. Yeah, I made up everything in that story except the, the uh, description of squonk. That's genius. He squeaks and he honks. Can you uh, give us an example, please? No, I tried. I actually sat and was like, what would the... Okay, the things I had to Google and, and search this week, I had to search synonym for honk, which I might show the video I recorded of myself absolutely crying laughing because when you search synonyms for honk, Google comes up with toot. Beep. Go toodle. I'm sorry, what was that last one? <laughs> Go toodle. Is that a hyphen or a one word? Two words. And combined is my favorite. It's uh, toot beep go toodle. <laughs> so would you say that a flock of geese doesn't honk? They toot beep go toodle? <laughs> toot beep go toodle. <laughs> 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 Isn't language beautiful? Oh, my God. I. Anyway, so uh, I had to Google that. And then I had to Google, (laughs) what does a toad feel like? Why don't you know? I couldn't remember if toads were dry or if they were slimy like frogs. No, they're dry. They're toads. I know. I know that now. I didn't make you hold toads that I caught. No, growing we did. Up. I just couldn't remember if we were catching frogs by the river or like toads that sat in the middle of like the pathways. And I couldn't remember which one felt like what. Don't forget there are peepers, which are like forest frogs. They look like frogs, but they're not all super wet like regular frogs. Yeah, so that's why I got thrown off. I couldn't remember what felt like what. So then I had to Google what does a toad feel like. And Google surprisingly didn't deliver on that as much as I thought it would. Hmm. It mostly wanted me to, to search for what, is, what does a toad feel. I'm surprised it didn't give you the licking toad trend from the early 2000s. It weirdly didn't. So anyway, if you need a good laugh, toot beep go toodle. That's all I got to say. Bye, y'all. I'm going to toot, beep, go, toot. I'll see you later. <laughs> or if a another car honks at you, then you're like, hey, don't go, toot, beep, go, toot on me, sir. <laughs> so that was the story of a squonk. Another last little bit of squonk facts. According to Medium, in 2002... Glenn David Gold gave importance to the myth of Squonk in his short story, The Tears of Squonk and What Happened Thereafter. Furthermore, a 1996 short story by Nancy Springer titled Birdsong centers around an outcast girl who meets a squonk, presented here as a bird, and was published in Bruce Coville's Book of Magic. In the climax of the story, the squonk takes the protagonist to see the phoenix funeral. Overcome with grief, it forgets its self-consciousness and weeps on the ashes left behind, which creates baby squonks that reform out of their puddle when they dissolve. So it's a squonk bird? 
in that story, in the song, in the story by Nancy Springer called Birdsong, it's a bird. In every other telling, it's just this uh, wrinkly creature. Well, two notes on that. It's bird spelled with a Y, which is mm-hmm. important for reasons. It's But she's basically making a squonk into a reverse phoenix because phoenixes are born of fire and squonks are born of water in that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was born at the funeral of a phoenix. And it's the phoenix ashes mixed with squonk tears that create baby squonks. It's confusing to me, though, to have a phoenix and a squonk in the same mythology. (laughs) Yeah, it's very silly, but I still love it. My last favorite silly theory is that you cannot see the squonk, but that it actually feeds off the tears of cis white men in order to survive. Mm. All in all, people theorize that the squonk is just a fun story made up to entertain children at the dinner table while others do say it's a real creature that exists today. You decide. If it's feeding off the tears of cis white men, there are a few states or counties even in Pennsylvania that Squonk could go to and be real successful on that. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So the last thing I wanted to do is just give you a couple of fun Pennsylvania facts, because this is the Pennsylvania State Cryptid. Pennsylvania is where Rowan and I grew up. Mm Mm-hmm. And we just have a little fondness for the state. So, named by Governor William Penn after his arrival in the New World in 1682, Philadelphia, the city, combined the Greek words for love, philio, and brother, Adelphos, engendering its nickname of the City of Brotherly Love, while the state itself is named using the Latin word for wood, silva, and Penn's own name, therefore calling it Penn's Woods or Pennsylvania. Penn wanted it to just be called Sylvania, but the king added the pen in front in order to honor William Penn's father. The largest city in Pennsylvania is Philadelphia, and it served as the nation's capital from 1790 until a permanent capital was established in Washington, D.C. in 1800. The capital of the state of Pennsylvania, however, is not Philadelphia, but Harrisburg. All right, from now on, we have to call Philadelphia Philioadelphos. And now Pennsylvania is just Sylvania. <laughs> I'm sold. You, you managed to take the most heartbreaking story we probably have ever had on this podcast and make it hopeful. And I really appreciate that because we're nearing the end of a, a long year. It's been a rough year. And sometimes you just got to give a wet little buddy some soup. Oh, is soup your love language, though? Real quick. Do, does your mom always make you soup still even now? You know what's funny? She does. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I knew this. I knew this because I grew up with you. Yeah. Well, she she there's a few recipes she makes. It's kind of like her love language. But in recent years, it's just a thing that she and I do for each other where there's it's actually the recipe I talked about in the story. Um, it's just this simple minestrone soup that we both make. But we also handmake tiny meatballs to go in it. And whenever one of us makes it, we bring each other like half the batch. And so whenever I'm not feeling good, my mom always drives over and brings me that soup. I love that. I guess soup is kind of my love language. <laughs> Acts of service. All right. Okay. Talk to me. So today I am covering the mythological creatures of architecture, gargoyles. 
We begin with a quote. We tend to call any piece of architectural sculpture that depicts animals a gargoyle. Strictly speaking, however, gargoyles are decorative water spouts that preserve stonework by diverting the flow of rainwater away from buildings. The word gargoyle derives from the French gargouille, or throat, from which the verb to gargle also originates. Although the sculptural water spout originated in antiquity, it grew in popularity on Romanesque structures and proliferated during the Gothic period. Grotesques, which are similar in appearance, serve a variety of other practical and ornamental functions, such as corbels or capitals, for instance. The term grotesque can apply to any fanciful human or animal form, especially when it indulges in caricature or absurdity. These sculptural creatures appear most commonly on religious structures, but also on university buildings, town halls, and even on homes. That was from the Herbert F. Johnson Museum of Art, which is located in, in Ithaca, New York. And huge shout out to the Cornell University Library for making their online library accessible to humans. That was pretty That's cool. That's awesome. I know. All right. So we know gargoyles are for water. And monsters on buildings, for nearly any other reason, are grotesques. But anyone who turns into a jerk about that distinction should be doing better things with their time. Yeah, unless you're actively taking an architecture exam, do not be pedantic about that. Yeah, for the average bear, Disney has basically locked down the market on gargoyle common knowledge. I say this as someone whose Google search history is filled with myths and legends. When I first started my search, Google only wanted to give me the 1997 animated Disney show, Gargoyles. By the way, I've only seen a tiny bit of it, but it's basically Batman, if Batman were a group of ancient stone monsters from Scotland that only came alive at night, were friendly to humans and was filled with tons of Shakespearean themes while being set in New York. It's on Disney+. Plus. You're welcome. Yeah, I remember that show. I only remember a couple, like, reruns at weird times. Okay, but also, Disney has another, even more famous piece of media involving gargoyles. The 1996 adaptation of Hunchback of Notre Dame has three very important characters called gargoyles that are basically just grotesques real quick interjection if you want to watch the most insightful analysis of hunchback of notre dame and all of its adaptations throughout history lindsay ellis is a youtuber and now a new york times best-selling author Ooh. who yeah i'm actually reading her book right now but she does an analysis of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, like the book all the way through its adaptations. And she has a huge segment about this movie and what it means for them to put these gargoyle characters in it. So I'll talk more about the book in a bit, but I will say that that movie, as far as Disney adaptations go, was not that far off from the book. I was shocked by how close it was. It's pretty dark. It's so dark they wanted to go for this totally different feel 
Gotta say, though, it's got some bops. It does. I love that. As far I love that movie. Uh, I grew up with it. I quite liked that one. Jonathan Young. Again, sorry. One more real quick pitch. Jonathan Young is a singer. And he did a cover. He does like metal covers of Disney songs. And he does this cover of The Bells of Notre Dame. And it is one of the most beautiful things you'll ever listen to. Put it on the recommendations page. Because I want to see that. So tell me more about Gargoyles. Okay. So before I launch into my story... We're just going to know for the rest of the episode, gargoyles remove water from build, well, divert water from buildings so as to not ruin the structure. Grotesques and chimera, that's another word for it, are support structures or decoration with no yes. intended water involvement whatsoever. Cool. Are you ready for a story? One might never realize it now, as there are bright, delightful worlds to look down upon in the palm of your very hand. But there is a place above the to and fro of the city in which time stretches out into a sweet, slow forever. Farther than your initial intuition can parse, with a craning of your neck, you will find the skyscrapers of stone that stand as markers on the little blue line you follow wherever you need to be. On one particular tower, Notre Dame, perch legions of wild-faced creatures carved of stone and frozen in positions of warding. They scream at the sky or growl at faraway lands. They guide gallons of water away from their home in protective repetition. Wings and claws and teeth and eyes so wide and brows so deep that their expressions pierce the very idea of fear. Above the unceasing beating of the world down below, like frantic minnows caught in a raging flood, these beasts stand firm in an impossibly human anachronism of eternity. For them, every raindrop falls in unfathomable slowness to whisk away the very molecules of their stony existence. Somehow, the erosion of time feels not unlike waking from a deep sleep. One particular creature... With a dog-like dragon face, massive clawed paws, and thick, seemingly leathery wings, appears as if he were trying to push and separate his way from the wall itself. Half-formed, it seems that, should another millennia of fair weather pass, he might manage to extract the continuation of his self from the nearest blocks of limestone— Hind legs, a long tail, perhaps. Mm, but that would take another few centuries still, and it would be just as easy to go on without the swinging appendage. Gargoyles have a very different understanding of the world than you or I. They are smart, the majority, not even due to any particular gifts. But so long watching the world is bound to teach you a thing or two. But those things are quite different from what you or I claim to know. For example, 
This gargoyle has no real use for a name. But he's learned that names are what beings are called. He thinks that he would like being called one day, and since he's heard the word monster used so much in reference to him, he's adopted it. The word sounds important, and it makes the young people get loud with what they call laughter, or even screams that lead to embraces from bigger people. For the small ones, loud is often good. For the big ones, it's always bad. When people have water streaming from their faces, it's a very bad thing indeed. But when the water runs from his, they say he's operating correctly, which makes the people bare their teeth toward him. Another good sign he's learned. Monster doesn't understand why the people also call themselves he or she or they, but he noticed long, long ago that the he people had all the power. And Monster certainly feels powerful, so it must be the truth of the words for himself. When Monster was first created and set into Notre Dame, his gaze was tilted toward the distant horizon. He could hear these exciting sounds below, but he could not see them. So over time, inch by fractional inch, the beast lowered his head, a movement so minute as to become stillness. He thought long and hard about how he might continue his very important duty of protecting his home from draining water, while still getting a look at the noisy things beneath the walls. When he finally managed it, Monster found his way to peer down at the flocks of people. It's not uncommon for stone statues to move in this way. It's a bit of old magic some humans can still do. With the time it takes to work with stone, the care that an artist shows, and the layers upon layers of magnificent, imaginative belief imbued into the resulting form, it's no surprise that they are bestowed with beautiful life. Every sculpture you can imagine now has diligently made adjustments to their form so that they might live out the richness of their own eternity. How lucky for the sculptor to give and then receive perfection in progress. You'll also see how the personality of each creation comes out with much influence from their creator. This is especially true of gargoyles, who are as varied and moody as any gathering of people. The gargoyles and the grotesques and the chimera might chat for unceasing hours if only the wind would blow words through their open mouths more often. Or they could find a way closer to one another to pass the time in safe, together sort of stillness. These figures use an architecture of loneliness to support the vast building they share. But then, Monster met a family of birds. One year, 
The gargoyle couldn't remember when a family of birds came to nest on his head. He'd recently slipped out of the fine netting that covered the cathedral for as far as he could see in any direction. No people rushed to stuff him back inside, so with a view of the wide, uninterrupted sky, Monster was overjoyed to discover a pair of the soft, fluttering beings dancing in and out of his vision. And like a breath, they settled on his head and made a home. Their weight was barely noticeable, but distinctly warm. It felt completely unfamiliar to the tooth-bearing beast, and he wondered, day after day, if this is what quickening was. He understood, in a new way, that there was cold, just as there was warmth. Soon, there was more of these delicate bird sounds emanating from their unseen roost, smaller even than the pair he was familiar with. The gargoyle wanted desperately to look up at them, but moving his head would take longer than the bird's lifetime ten times over, and to turn his gaze would be to toss their home toward the ground. After a few years, he'd only just begun to learn their language. It was very fast, you see. Like, the people of the ground, the birds, they flickered and and pattered like hard sleet on glass when they spoke. Monster understood the language of eternal things. Sun, stone, moon, time. It's a slow speech that makes translation very hard. He knew generations had come and gone, for the pairs of birds that came and went were familiar, but different over time. So little by little, he opened his mouth wider. This way, the birds would always come home. They could find shelter from the sun in his maw when it was hot and stay on his head high above the gushing when the river of rain ran through him. To Monster, their return and their children's return sounded like, thank you. One day, that seemed the same as so many before, Monster directed his attention to the activity occurring on the tip of his nose. The large birds were encouraging the small ones to leap into the sky. It was always a bit of an ordeal, but never lasted long. He knew now the sound of their joy when the air first lifted the young ones toward the sun on their very own wings. Then, in a moment so fast, most gargoyles would never even notice it in their stillness, the smallest bird leapt and did not fly. But Monster was practicing that quickening that he felt when the birds were nearby and every atom of his being was focused on the soft creature as it fell toward the loud ground. And the Monster of Stone caught it. The action was shocking. There was a groaning like thunder and a crumbling of dust, and the very building around him protested. Monster never knew that such quick movement was possible, and as soon as it was done, he could not remember how he even managed it at all. 
but there was the little bird, flustered and small and safe in the outstretched embrace of his paw. The little bird flew away not long later. Birds are meant for flying, after all. The next rainstorm, Monster understood what it meant when people rained from their faces. He felt overcome by elements which welled in every space his stone could hold. He decided then that he would never lower his outstretched paw. He caught the flightless bird destined for the fast, horrifying ground, and the small, quick creature of softness stayed in his horrifying claws, safe in the slow above, until it could fly. And after the bird flew, it came back again to build a nest, this time in his embrace. It found another bird, and now they kept their family right there, so close before his wide stone eyes that he could know them. Speaking in confusing sounds and actions, but so very close. He began to understand the birds in a new way. Through their soft pressing to his cheek, and their attention to his cleanliness, and their confident weight when they slept unafraid. Monster knew, with only one arm against his home of Notre Dame, that this was the beginning of his end. He felt, for the first time, the inescapable pull to the ground that all of the fast creatures know. But he never moved his outstretched arm that held the nest. What the bird said to him in its tender, quick way, he would say, strong and slow, for every moment that eternity allowed him, I love you. That was so sweet. You also told an incredibly wholesome, lovely story. Yes, because we discussed multiple times this week about how I never tell a happy story. <laughs> and so I gave myself the challenge. I do this because I love you. <laughs> it was so sweet. You did end it with him like nearing death. But this is how I this is how I roll. OK, this is <laughs> <laughs> what made you want to tell the story from the point of view... First of all, I guess I love Monster. What made you want to tell the story from the point of view of Monster experiencing life through birds? Good question. <laughs> I should have a genius example or did it just Did it just come to you of like, this is what I wanted, this is what I want to tell? Definitely. I picked a gargoyle and I went, here we go. And I started writing the story before I did the research because, you know, I, I have a, a familiarity with gargoyles. I love them. Yeah. My mom, actually, when she was in high school, painted this really cool ape gargoyle that Ooh. is a scribe. He has a stone scroll that he's chipping words into. It's in mm -hmm. our guest room in the house. And I've always loved that. And 
I've always loved Gothic architecture. I think my dad taught me that. And in when we first moved into our very old house that needed lots of love, one of the showers, which was like a, a room you could walk in, the mm. spout was a grotesque. It was a face, a kind of green man face spitting out water. I don't know. I just, I want, I want them to have rich interior lives. There is no way that these creatures that exist immoving, made of stone, perceive time or anything the same way that we do. No, and and you you have this way of writing that is always so poetic and internal in a way that I love, you know, like the the way that you always describe the world and this is going to sound so simplistic, but like you always describe the world so differently in every story. I mean, you could have Every character you've ever written describe an apple and each one would see it in a totally different way and you just fully embody it every time. And it's always in the most like beautiful poetic way that I just want to like play on repeat as I fall asleep and listen to the sound of your storytelling. Well, we talk about this. You're the person who's going to actually get the characters on the quest. I'm the person that's going to tell the story of every single person examining their own rucksack. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> I do love a good introspection, but yeah. How do you feel about your sleeping bag, fair adventurer? Let's go. <laughs> sleeping bag, fair adventurer? Where even are we? On an adventure. I should have known, though. I should have probably really thought about the fact that you were doing the squonk, which I've known all week. And I did not know that you were going to take good care of him. I, I, I guessed because I know you. But yeah. You gave us the most melancholy character that just hurts my heart. And you just populated him in this world of people, like a teenager who's going to take care of him. And then the teenager's <laughs> teenager's teenager who's going to take care mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. And if I were a wise person, I would have perhaps given us a nice adventure or a happy-go-lucky gargoyle strolling about his day, but no, this is the melancholy monster episode. <laughs> <laughs> melancholy monster. Wow. Yeah, you're right. We were originally jokingly calling this episode Monster Mash, but I don't know if we can keep that title. Because it, it ain't no mash. It ain't no dance party. There's no... Okay, does it bother you that we don't actually know what the Monster Mash is? We only know about someone singing about what the Monster Mash is? Rowan, I think about that all the time. I do too. <laughs> you don't, they only talk about the Monster Mash. They don't actually, you don't, we don't know what the Monster Mash is. But we do know it was a graveyard smash. Rowan, I lay at night and think about this. <laughs> oh my God, what a pair are we. Next time I'm thinking about it, I'm going to text you so that you know and you have to join me. So that I have to dive back into that rabbit hole. Okay, well, tell me more about the history of right. your creature. So we're going to go back to the Notre Dame, to, sorry, Notre Dame. There's no the. I keep wanting to do that. And you know quite a lot about it, and I actually had to do a bit of research. So you'll, you'll probably be able to jump in very easily. But 
The original story, The Notre Dame, if anyone is unfamiliar, is written by Victor Hugo, and it is oft considered a foundational piece of French text. It is filled with such quotes as, The saints were his friends and blessed him. The monsters were his friends and kept watch over him. Which, in my mind, that's, that is the, the quintessential quote of that story to me which is Mm -hmm. perhaps why I wanted to make a nice gargoyle. Uh, The other quote that I uh, think about a lot is, There exists in this era, for thoughts written in stone, a privilege absolutely comparable to our current freedom of the press. It is the freedom of architecture. So Victor Hugo wrote this book, to encourage the protection of Gothic architecture because in 1829, when he started writing it, people were either neglecting, modernizing, or completely destroying ancient buildings. They'd chosen to remove medieval stained glass from the windows of Notre Dame to put in white glass so that there would be more light. Are you kidding me? And someone probably got lead poisoning to do it, so what the heck, man? Not worth it. That's what I say. I say it's not worth it. Not worth it. So if you ever read this book, you'll notice that there are extensive descriptions of medieval architecture that are truly a bit excessive for the story. Before publishing this book in 1831, after a fair number of delays, Hugo had already published a paper which translated to War to the Demolishers. So this was clearly his personal crusade. And I can imagine that anyone reading The Hunchback of Notre Dame not knowing this might be a bit frustrated because we tend to look at books and say, oh, this this person is telling this story because they want you to know about the character or the plot, but it's actually to give a beautiful picture and humanize architecture. Mm-hmm. Before his book, people didn't really care about Notre Dame. Like they just, re- it wasn't, a, it wasn't this like place you would go visit. It was just a building. And then he wrote the book and it became this famous landmark. Right. This man notably was not so great at balancing modernization and preservation he called the printing press quote the german pest oh god uh and the printing press is arguably the invention that changed modern society so i'm gonna have to disagree with him on that one but circling back to what you said when i was doing this research of course i instantly thought of the notre dame burning on april 15 2019 And I think Victor Hugo would have been overjoyed to see pledges of $859 million to $1 billion made to rebuild it. And that's depending on which source you go to. To quote a Washington Post article by Rick Nowak, published on April 24, 2019, quote, The first major donations were pledged before the fire had even been extinguished on April 15th. Luxury goods magnate François-Henri Pinault said he would contribute $112 million 
followed by his rival, Bernard Arnault, who announced a donation twice his competitor's amount. Later on, L'Oreal, Benincourt Meyer's family, and the chief executive of French oil giant Total announced similar contributions. So... We got a bidding war, I guess, on who can be more French and more charitable. That's kind of interesting. With the incredible amount of money that was raised so quickly for a building and the first estimates of repairs coming in between $330 million and $670 million before tax, there is a lot of discussion about the 30,000 Parisians who face homelessness and That's just the number at the time of the fire. So I think that's an element to consider. I remember being at work in the office the day the fire happened and my coworker popped up in the cubicle next to me and just looked horrified. And I remember asking her what happened and she told me, and she had just recently visited Notre Dame with her husband a couple years before as like a dream destination for her. Mm. So she was really emotional about it when it was burning. I've been to France a fair bit and have actually never gone to Paris, which is kind of funny. So That is. Yeah, I uh, am bummed that I didn't get to see it before it was set on fire. What's set on fire? I make it sound like an army of arsonists popped in. I, I mean, I have the angel and the devil on my shoulder about a lot of those things. You know, we have the must-preserve history. History is vital and important and rich. And then on the other side, things burn down, time happens. And I'm sure it's somewhere in between. Yeah, I agree. So Notre Dame is arguably the most famous home of gargoyles, grotesques, and chimera in modern consciousness. But it is not the only place by any means. There are incredibly unique gargoyles and grotesques all over the world. At Freiburg Minister in Germany, one gargoyle is a woman with her face toward the building and her bum thrust straight out into the air. I am sure you can guess where the drainage spout is. Supposedly, though this might be a rumor, her rear is pointed directly at the city council as revenge for a payment dispute. I choose to believe it's real because it's already a wild, wild statue to build into your building. So just toss on payment dispute while you're at it for extra laughs. It's very clever. It's funny. I highly recommend looking at pictures. In the Tallinn Town Hall in Estonia, they have colorful metal dragon gargoyles that wear crowns. The Chrysler Building in New York City has shining metal eagles adorned on corners. There's a female gargoyle, I think she might be a nun, um, on St. Vitus Cathedral in Prague, and she has gotten much scarier with age. The darkening of the stone in strategic places makes her look like she should be popping out of your closet to kill you. I already love her. (laughs) There's also the Dendera Temple in Egypt. Uh, It has lion-faced grotesque, and it is in gorgeous condition, and it dates back to the first century BC. But I want to talk about one of my favorite things that's going on in the grotesque gargoyle world uh, that is a rather shocking number 
of modern gargoyles added to older buildings that need restoration. Okay, sure. Gargoyles and grotesques are meant to be intimidating, unique, and horrifying figures that reflect what people at the time of their creation are afraid of. So choosing modern iconography is not only just so punk rock because it's going on an older building alongside other older gargoyles, it is such a beautiful, exciting, funny continuation of a tradition that spans for hundreds of years. Uh, Here's a quote by Letitia Barbier from Atlas Obscura. In the 1980s, Washington National Cathedral became one of the first to experiment with gargoyle reinterpretation. Some of you might have heard the story of the most famous one, the Darth Vader gargoyle, who was the winning proposal in a children's contest organized by National Geographic. Christopher Rader, a 13-year-old kid from Nebraska, created its design envisioning the Star Wars villain as a modern incarnation of supreme evil. Sculpted by J. Hall Carpenter and carved by Patrick J. Plunkett, our dark-sided Anakin is today on the Washington Cathedral wearing his iconic helmet on the first tiny peaked roof from the center pinnacle on the right-hand side. Oh my god, I just looked up a picture of this, and it's just his little head on the side of the building. Like, on, it's yes. like a, it's on the corner. It's on a peak. There's a peak, and it's like at the base of the triangle of the peak. There's a Vader on the right side, and what looks like a little raccoon bud on the left. We will definitely post a picture, but basically on this classic building, it looks like Darth Vader's helmet. And I am so inspired. Inspired by that choice. Like, they went to children, the humans that are most able to admit their fears of monsters and reflect the current culture, and they put it on a historic building, thus honoring the original intention of grotesques as an architectural species. I love it. So, having found that, I found some more. Ooh, okay. Here is a list of some of my favorite modern gargoyles and grotesques. Three of them also on the National Cathedral. The Crooked Politician. The Robot, which looks like a surveillance camera, and that really hit home for me. The Pacifist, which is a man in a gas mask. Mm. Then there's the Astronaut at Cathedral de Salamanca. There's Gizmo at Chapelle de Bethlehem. The, Wait, Gizmo, like, like the... Yep, the actual character Gizmo. Oh my god. <laughs> There's the ear mouse at St. George's <gasps> Chapel at Windsor Castle, which is a mouse with an ear on its back where wings might go. Yeah, that's a famous little creature. Yep. And then the alien, like the movie, at Paisley Abbey. That is amazing. Oh, oh my god. I love that so much. These are, these are so cool. The idea, the idea of the alien from the movie Alien on a, a beautiful abbey is everything I didn't know I wanted in architecture. Yes, it's 
made better by virtue of the classic elements still being there, other gargoyles from earlier restorations. I am here for a good architectural juxtaposition. So, everyone else who's, you know, part of a fair number of people who may disagree with this choice, I hear what you're saying, okay? Rowan, my moon, my stars, wonderful woman that you are, beautiful creature on this planet, you must be confused. This podcast episode is supposed to be about monsters, not punk rock architecture. And to you, I say, bah! Architecture can be monstrous. Tracy, have you heard of the Pier 1 playground in Brooklyn? I actually have not. Okay. In 2010, a bunch of architects decided to put these big, futuristic half-domes on the ground alongside all the other equipment for the kids. So they build them out of steel. Turns out, in the July sun, they heat up to about 127 degrees Fahrenheit. So not only are kids not going to be able to play on them, anyone who so much as brushes against one of these domes that are everywhere is going to sustain third-degree burns. Who? How did no one at any point in the process stop that from happening? People had to plan it. People had to pitch it. People had to agree to it. People had to make it. People had to install it. And at no point did anyone go, hey, you know what happens when metal gets hot? At no point did anyone just stop by and go, hey, just um, since we're pouring all this money into this anyway, maybe um, we should look at what we build all the rest of the playgrounds out of and notice that it's not steel. And uh, think for a second about why that might be. Do you remember on our kindergarten playground at the elementary school the metal slide yes but that thing was brutal i think that's why i'm so agitated by this that like adults who should know better didn't and and my tiny little child butt had to get burned for it and not only that but some of the big toys for kids made of plastic get really hot yeah i'm with you architecture can be terrifying and monstrous yeah So anyway, um, mythology monsters. Here we go. (laughs) Gargoyles are often attributed to the medieval world, but are also very prominent due to the Gothic revival that began around the mid to late 18th century, for all of the cool reasons listed above. Because of that, much of their history reflects both times. While grotesques certainly existed in ancient Greece and ancient Egypt, much earlier than the European examples we are all familiar with. I'm going to suggest it's probably because they're from different pantheons, and so people's brains keep those examples very separated. Uh, I was actually surprised to learn that the oldest known gargoyle is 13,000 years old. It predates the lion figures common in Egypt and Greece, And it's a stone crocodile located in what is now modern Turkey. I didn't learn that in school, and that is most likely because grotesques are now linked very closely with Christian churches in parts of Europe, such as France. According to Folklore Thursdays, it was described as having a long reptilian neck, 
a slender snout and jaws, heavy brows and membranous wings. It was a nasty beastie who was notorious for swallowing ships, breathing fire, and spouting, or vomiting, so much water from its mouth it caused flooding in the area. The townspeople of nearby Rouen tried to appease La Gargouille by offering a victim every year and, for once, were given a reprieve from the usual tale involving the sacrifice of a virgin maiden. Instead, they presented criminals to La Gargouille, giving an altogether new meaning to the concept of capital punishment. But this did not placate the greedy beast. Sometime around the year 600, a priest named Romanus arrived in Rouen and promised to deal with La Gargouille if the residents agreed to build a church in town and join his congregation. When they complied, he set off with the annual convict and the items needed for an exorcism, a bell, a book, a candle, and a cross. Legend states Romanus subdued the dragon with the signs of the cross and got his craft on by restraining the dragon with a leash made from his own robe before leading him back to town. Like all evil creatures, the dragon was burned at the stake and everything, save for the head and neck, which could withstand the heat of flames because, well, it's a dragon, turned to ash. La Gargouille's remnants were then mounted on the town wall, and history was made when it became the model for stone gargoyles in the centuries to come. End quote. That legend is all over everywhere as kind of the definitive beginning to the use of gargoyles, because it attaches a clear hero, and by hero I mean specifically a Christian saint, mm -hmm. who saves a town from a monster and attaches it to a church. And, you know, whether or not that tale springs from any kernel of truth, it is certainly a popular story that is repeated time and time again. Gargoyles were actually employed by the Catholic Church during the Middle Ages to remind parishioners of the ever-present devil. Literacy at that time was incredibly rare, so visual representations were very valuable. With these monstrous forms looking down on people as they came into the church for worship, they were reminded what might befall their immortal soul if they did not live up to the organization's values. Gargoyles were also perceived as guardians, able to ward off bad spirits, the evil eye, and various other horrors that roamed the world outside of the church or space that they adorned. Some believe, by employing important local and mythical animals, their presence encouraged pagans to assimilate to Christian teachings, as the folklore of the local religions were blended with this new practice that spread through Europe at the time. Remember the legend of the saint who saves the day? Well, Darlene True Christ also discusses the story in her book, American Gargoyles, Spirits in Stone. In the text, she describes another legend that places the origin of gargoyles in Celtic history. She explains that Celtic hunters believed that the heads of their prey were imbued with magical abilities 
that could, quote, attract luck and repel evil. To utilize this power, they would arrange the decapitated heads on stakes in a circle around their homes. This morphed into trophy heads on exterior buildings and so on and so forth. Do we know if this is true? No, we do not. No, but I like it. It's pretty punk rock origin for a pretty punk rock concept of a creature. Oh, definitely. It's got a Vlad the Impaler vibe, too. Yeah, very strong Vlad the Impaler energy. (laughs) There was a notable member of clergy who loudly disagreed with the employ of these horrifying beasties put on churches. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, a 12th century leader of the church, said, and I quote, What excuse can there be for these ridiculous monstrosities in the cloister where the monks do their reading, extraordinary things at once beautiful and ugly? A beast with a serpent for its tail, a fish with an animal's head, and a creature that is a horse in front and a goat behind, and a second beast with horns and the rear of a horse— One could easily spend the whole day gazing fascinated at these things one by one instead of meditating on the law of God. Do you want to know what my horrible monster brain immediately thought of? Bring it. Sounds like this dude was a little horny for the statues. That's all I'm going to say. Ooh, you make a point. He just... One could spend the whole day gazing fascinated at these things one by one. Dude, sounds like you're a little horny for gargoyles. Not gonna yuck your yum, but that's what I'm hearing. He probably had a lot of pent-up everything in his life, let's be honest. Mm Mm-hmm. So today, aside from becoming part of the coolest restoration projects ever, gargoyles can also be found in D&D campaigns, books, Stephen King calls them nightmares in the sky, (laughs) video games, haunted attractions, and much more. Oh, wait, Tracy. Mm Mm-hmm. Just to make everything about Pennsylvania today... Yeah! In the 19th century, Pittsburgh, of all places, really got into gargoyles. The city now has more than 20, quote, authentic gargoyles adorning their churches, government buildings, and more, and you can take a tour of them called Downtown Dragons. I want to go. I want to go, too. Let's do it. We got Mothman. We got the Vlad the Impaler tour. And we got Downtown Dragons. Mm, Okay, so we'll have a United States tour, and then we'll have a Europe tour. Yeah, because we also got to add on... The Winchester Mystery House. Oh, well, just come out and visit me when there's not a pandemic. Right. I was going to add when when uh, maybe we don't quarantine. For now, let's quarantine. But I learned so much today. That was so cool. I love little, little gargoyle beasties. The squonk did me in. <laughs> I, I just want to cuddle him. I do, too. That's why I made sure he always has soup. Oh, maybe. He just says soup. Unless he doesn't want it because it's a nice day and he's just going to hang out. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get too too emotional, Tracy, tell me Mm -hmm. something good. Okay. We always joke every week that we're like, oh, I had all week to come up with something good. And like, I've got a couple things. But the reality is this week was one of those weeks where like my something good, if I'm being truly honest... Is that, like, 
I had a really nice shower today. Like, it was just a really nice hot shower. Yeah, cool. You know? Like, it's one of those weeks. So when I saw a comment from one of our patrons, Jer Bear Scare, who also recommended this, the list that led me to squonk, that he really liked a quote from our episode last week that I wrote uh, about Jing Shi. Uh, it just really made me happy. I really, I needed that in that moment because it was a rough week. And knowing how much our listeners enjoy what we do really motivates me when I'm not feeling motivated to work hard on the podcast. It was a really good quote. <laughs> Thank you. So that is my something good. Hey, Rowan. Mm-hmm. Tell me something good. I made a list this week because I... I'm tired of forgetting every single thing that's happened to me in my whole life when you ask. That's such a smart, that's so smart for two reasons. One, so that you have an answer. But two, that's just a good mental health practice. Yeah, it took me all, I, I did it throughout the week. Okay, so the, the thing that I'm really giddy about is this guy named Matthew Torres, who goes by the Storytime Guy on TikTok did a TikTok where he talked about the fact that he is working on a free-to-everyone book that he wants to release that will be all about fairy tales and fables not from Europe, which I think is so cool. So I followed him immediately. I highly recommend everyone check him out because any human that is endeavoring to get in the trenches with story research it that's awesome and he talked about how he wants every story to be just one page so people can Mm. not feel daunted they can feel like Mm -hmm. it's accessible i'm so giddy about this person i'm also giddy because one of my favorite human beings on this planet she introduced me to depop which you know is a resale app that apparently everyone else uses in the whole world but i just found a really great velvet blazer for excruciatingly cheap like lunch money cheap Ooh, i also have a velvet blazer we should wear our velvet blazers together yeah nothing feels cooler than a velvet blazer oh and the last thing is casey who guested on our winchester mystery house episode number 21 told me that there are gluten-free oreos and i swear to you that the sky opened up and the sun shone down on me and a choir of demons sang with joy i have never seen rowan get so into zumba as she did when she was reminded just before it started that gluten-free oreos were a thing and the joy and pep it brought to her step that day yes was remarkable i was pepped up by even the prospect of an oreo oh actually While we're on the topic of episode 21, I have this to mention down below, but I'm going to talk about it now. Um, We owe a huge thank you to our listener, Stephanie D., who took the time to write in and let us know that there was an upload glitch. Stephanie, your email was so specific and detailed and kind and helpful, and we re-uploaded it and double-checked it. And there shouldn't be any problems streaming it. Everything should be all sorted out, no matter which streaming source you use. And truly, to have 
a stranger take the time because it's a fair amount of time to Mm -hmm. be as kindly detailed as she was it's we're so grateful because even though we listen to the episodes and we check on the uploads often we won't know if someone's having a problem on their own device or something down the line unless someone tells us and being given the opportunity to fix that was a real pleasure. Um, I don't have a way to contact you, dear Stephanie D. So thank you from the bottom of our willing and fable hearts. Thank you so yes. much. We so appreciate it. And if you ever want to let us know anything, you can do so through our website, through our Gmail, willingandfable at gmail.com, Instagram, or if you ever want to just submit a story or write to us for fun. You can do that on the contact page at willingandfable.com. And we have two new patrons to thank today. Yes. We would like to thank Jamie H. and Justin K. for becoming patrons. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for making it possible to do what we do. We are so grateful and we can't wait to get ready working on season two for you guys. But in the meantime, Tracy, I pulled a five-star review for you. <gasps> I always love it when you do this. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm pulling it up. Okay, can I read it? Yes. All right, it's from Zygodactyl987. Title, Fantastic Listen. I won't waste time building up into it. This podcast is fantastic. The hostesses are articulate and their banter is fascinating to follow, while the myths, legends, fables, sagas, and all the stories that they cover are, while often familiar, analyzed and evaluated on a completely different level absolutely recommend thank you so much for that review that was very very sweet thank you many for the ego boost we do appreciate being called fascinating i think probably everyone does but that is chef's kiss compliment chef's kiss love it so thank you so much for leaving a five-star review it helps us out so much you guys have no idea the impact it has so thank you so much for listening and remember stories grow with the telling so if you like what we do tell a friend or hug a squonk and we'll see you soon okay Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.